Amen. Well, take your Bibles, turn over to the book of Nehemiah tonight. <clears throat> we had a little bit of excitement here just a little bit ago, and uh, Mrs. Ike uh, had a, it appears to have some kind of a sugar response or lack of sugar or something. I'm not sure how that works, high, low, but uh, she, uh, we had the paramedics come by and they were quick to respond, and she's doing so much better already, she was already up, and so... It looks as though she ate some peanut butter and some things like that. Didn't doing so much better now. Uh, some of the guys in the back thought that uh, one of our ladies was having their baby, and uh, <clears throat> we were 
they were getting excited about that, and then they were concerned after they heard the truth. So uh, let's have a quick word of prayer for Mrs. Ike this, this evening. Father, we come to you. We just ask, Lord, you be with her. And, Lord, it does appear she's doing so much better than she was. But, Lord, we also know that's scary, especially for those that were around her when she, uh, Father, struggled and ultimately uh, uh, that took over. And, Lord, we just pray, dear God, that you would just help her now, be with her, watch over uh, Father, not only her, but the doctors. And then, Lord, encourage the family. And, Lord, may it just simply be a matter of her sugar issues and they can get that worked out. And, Lord, uh, we'll certainly be grateful for that. But thank you, Father, for her safety to this point. And, Lord, thank you, Father, for just your goodness in our life. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 1 we're going to begin with in just a moment. But um, I shared something with the singles this morning that I thought maybe you could, uh, that would help you as well. Because again, all of us are trying to learn constantly. We're always in a process of trying to uh, gain more understanding, more knowledge. And in this case, a young girl who was writing a paper for school came to her father and asked the question. She said, Dad, what is the difference between anger and exasperation? Anger and exasperation. The father said, well, it's mostly a matter of degree. Let me show you what I mean. So with that, the father goes to the telephone and he dials a number at random. The man who answered the phone said, hello, uh, answered the phone. And as a result, the father says, hello, is, um, is Melvin there? The man says, well, there's no one living here by the name of Melvin. Why don't you learn to look up some numbers before you dial them? See, so said the father to his daughter, that man right there. He's not a bit happy with our call. He's probably very busy with something, and, well, we annoyed him. Now watch. The father then dials the exact same number and says, Hello, is Melvin there? Now look here, came a heated reply. You just called this number, and I told you there's no Melvin here. You got a lot of nerve calling again. And then all of a sudden he just slammed the receiver down as hard as he could. The father turned to his daughter and he said, Dear... You see, that was anger. Now I'll show you what exasperation means. He dialed the exact same number and a violent man roared, Hello! The father said calmly, Hello, this is Melvin. Have there been any calls for me? (laughs) The difference between anger and exasperation, I guess. Okay. Well, anyway, I try to teach the singles every week, give them something to live by. Nonetheless, Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah chapter 1, a few years ago, a number of years ago, our theme was a mind to work, and I want to share a message entitled, A Mind to Work tonight. Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, that came to pass in the month Chisliu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. It came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. 
and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and, to thine, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that... Thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you, though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by the great pow- thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. <clears throat> Here we're in the book of Nehemiah. What a tremendous book it is. And again, there's a number of things that we can note here, and we're going to take a few minutes to consider it, but we're going to see that ultimately there's going to be a wall built. And before it's over with, Israel's going to be brought out of captivity and moved on into the land, and we're going to see a number of great things that take place as a result of Nehemiah and his efforts. But before we get into some things, I'm going to have a word of prayer, and then I'm just going to talk about a couple of things and make the application tonight, because in the end, when it's all said and done, we're going to learn a very important principle about the work of God and about life in general. And so let's have that word of prayer, and then we'll kind of consider the passage we read along with a few of the others and kind of bring it all together and find out what we can learn. Father, we come to you. Thank you again tonight for all that you mean to us and all that you do for us. Lord, we do gather, and we ask, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts. Now, Lord, again, we thank you for this simple book, the book of Nehemiah. Lord, we ask that, Father, the principles, or at least a principle that we can glean uh, from, can help us grow as believers. Lord, be glorified now tonight, and Lord, bless us. We need you tonight. We'll thank you. Make it profitable, and Father, we'll give you the glory. You're so worthy of our praise. And Father, we'll thank you as you speak to me, as I can then have opportunity to speak to this crowd Lord, may the Spirit of God work and move now in this place. Take control in Christ's name. Amen. First, we see the obstacle and uh, we note some things. Uh, First, the condition or state of their city. I mean, in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 3, it says, And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. We know that uh, some 70 years or so prior to that, we've had a situation here that where Israel, or should I say Judah, has gone into Babylonian captivity. And, and we note that Jerusalem itself had been taken by force, and there's all kinds of problems. In this case, we see here that the city has been left in ruin. He says very clearly here that, that it's broken down. The gates thereof are burned with fire. I mean, there's no sense of defense. There's no real walls in place. I mean, this city is exposed to every danger that it can possibly be exposed to. The condition or state of their city was a mess, laid waste by the enemy and left in ruin. 
We see the compassion or the sympathy of Nehemiah here also in the passage. He's the servant of God. Notice in verse 4, he turns around and says, And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We have here a man of God who has great compassion, <clears throat> tremendous concern for his homeland, for the city of his, 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 uh, 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 his forefathers. And uh, so here he is now recognizing or hearing the state or the situation that the city is in and his heart is breaking. I mean, it's amazing to think of that in a way. I mean, here we are in the United States of America. We live right here in our own backyard, if you will. We have the city of Akron and some suburbs around it. And we see the state that we're in there. But sometimes maybe we even lack the compassion we ought to. But in this case, we see here a tremendous amount of compassion. Notice Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5. We see the confession now and the sorrowfulness. He is so sorrowful and he's confessing the sin, both his sin and the sin of those uh, that ultimately placed them where they are today. Notice he said, and I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him. And he goes on to talk about the fact here. He says that we, verse 7, have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept thy commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Boy, there was no blame shifting here. Nehemiah was taking it. Nehemiah was not passing the buck in the least. He wasn't saying it's all because of those people that lived prior to me. It's all because of my grandfather. It's all because of my great-grandfather. It's everybody else's fault. It's not my fault that we find ourselves in the situation we're in. No, not Nehemiah. That's not how he functioned. That's not how he worked. He understood that the guilt rested squarely on the shoulders of himself and the people. Nothing was going to be gained by casting the, 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 you know, passing the buck or by somehow saying it's all because of them. No, in the end, it would all be because of what he and others would do. He didn't blame the fact that this conquering nation or a neglectful government, he, 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 he blamed the people of God. You know, it's easy to look around us and say, well, our culture and our, our, our society is so wrecked and ruined. It's so, so uh, uh, sinful and so wretched. But the truth is, is that we have to take some responsibility for that. You know, it's easy to, to blame and it's easy to, to, to assume that everybody else is at fault. But, well, I'll tell you what, we've got to also take some responsibility. He understood that God's people... Really, their rebellion toward the God of heaven is the reason why they find themselves in the state they're in. Boy, usually, let's be honest, normally when we find ourselves in a mess, it's because we have neglected or rejected the Word of God. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, we, we would like to believe it's the wife or the husband thou gavest me. We'd like to believe it's because my kids are just so rebellious. So we'd like to somehow blame the, the government or blame society or blame the culture in which we live. We'd like to blame the devil. We'd want to blame anybody, anything but us. And yet the fact is, is that it's more than not. I mean, we're in the state we're in uh, because of our own sinfulness, our own neglect of God and his word. The fact is, is that the state they now find themselves in was the prophetical end of what disobedience brings. That's what disobedience was said. That's what God said would happen in the midst of disobedience. So, Nehemiah was effectively saying, the city is in ruin, and it's our fault. That's what he was saying, basically. 
So we, we note the condition or state. We see the compassion or sympathy. We note the confession or sorrowfulness. But I want you to see the cry of Nehemiah, verse 9 through 11. Notice his cry. <clears throat> but if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now, these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by the great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant. He, he early on goes to God and says, now here's, here's the promise you gave us. You said if we turn our ear to you. You said if we re, re, you know, return unto you. you. You're the one who made the promise. And we, I want to remind you of that promise, God, because we need you and we've got to turn back to you. He says, now let thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servants this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Boy, the word mercy means a little more to us tonight, doesn't it? For I was the king's cupbearer. There's an observation here. I just want to share this concerning them and us again. You know, the city had been laid waste by the enemy. The walls were broken down. The city's left in ruin. They couldn't walk around without stepping over rubbish. Everywhere they turned, it was a mess. However, I believe that they had an advantage. You say, what do you mean? Well, sure there were obstacles to overcome. Sure there were things literally in their, their physical pathway. But, and it meant hours of labor. I understand that. It meant, it meant tremendous sacrifice in order to clean it up, in order to deal with it and to ultimately overcome it. I'm aware that their living conditions were poor, even dangerous. I understand that for the children that were there, I mean, it would have been a, a very difficult place to raise children. I get all of that. But consider our situation again. We're surrounded by a host of wrecked and ruined hearts. I mean, we're surrounded with Broken lives and wrecked marriages and, and failing families and corrupted homes and relationships that are on the rocks. We have all of this all around us, even in the church, unfortunately, today. It may not be so visible. We can't walk down the road and trip over the debris. We can't find it everywhere we turn. We don't see the ugliness of it all around us. We see people in their ties steer and in their nice pretty dresses. And it looks wonderful to the naked eye. But the fact is the greatest enemy is the secret one. There are so many casualties in this battle that we are facing today in Christianity. And yet more than ever it seems that we just gloss right over it. The silent disease is the deadliest. I mean, it's one thing when you can see it. I recently had a wart grown on my head. Boy, I tell you what, I couldn't help but see it every day I looked in the mirror. Like, what in the world? That thing just keeps growing. I asked my personal physician about it. You say, you make a lot of money to have a personal physician. Yeah, I know. I'm pretty proud of that fact. She attends this church and I call her my personal physician. But anyway, I said, what do you think about that thing? She said, I don't think it's, 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 it does, it's not cancer, I can tell you that. 
And I was like, sure, I understand that. And then I turned around and went, no, indeed. But anyway, but, but I, I'm thinking this thing's growing. And so I went to the dock and, and they, they burn it off or whatever they do, you know, and they did all this stuff to it. You know what? I couldn't help but see it. Every day I go to the mirror and man, I'm looking at it going, wow, that thing's getting bigger. It's getting bigger. I gotta deal with it. I'm gonna have to face it. I can't just act like it's not there. It's glaring. It's right in my face. Or on my face. But you know what's sad is when there's something inside you don't see. And it's growing. And it isn't until later on down the road you get the news. It's eaten up your body. Well, that's, that's scary stuff. You know, that's exactly what it seems to me that's going on in our churches and in our homes and in our culture, our society today. Everybody, boy, the homes are still nice and it seems the cars we're driving are in good shape and it seems that everybody dresses nice and tries to act nice for the most part and we've got everything we need to feel comfortable. And yet the fact is, is that there is a scourge in our nation, a scourge in our communities and it's called sin. It's destroying us. So I think they kind of had an advantage. At least they could see the enemy, so to speak. They could see the debris. They could see the wreck and ruin. They could see the carnage. And they could face it and deal with it. It wasn't easy. It was a battle. But at least it was a visible one. And the truth is today is that the only people that can see the real battle taking place today in Christianity and in the world in which we live are spiritual believers. When's the last time you looked at the world you live in and went, it is an ugly place? When's the last time you saw a program or you heard uh, uh, some kind of radio program or some kind of news thing or watched uh, some kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, um, commercial? Maybe went out in public and observed people and said to yourself, wow, are we in a horrible battle? I think we get so used to everything around us, the environment in which we live, that we almost look right over it. We see the obstacle that they faced. I want you to note the opposition that they faced. Look, if you would, in Nehemiah chapter 10, or 2, excuse me. If you can find Nehemiah chapter 10, let me know. Why are you laughing? It's in there. I got you. <laughs> was it Nehemiah? Which one was it? I, oh, I can't tell the story. I'm not, I can't do that to my dad. Oh, I've told it before, I think. We were at camp one year. I'm sorry, I've got to deviate. It's the best. I, he's not in here, is he? Forget it. <laughs> I'm going to tell it anyway. I'm telling it anyway. <laughs> He'll get over it. We were at camp. We were sitting in the back row, you know, because, you know, we had a bunch of teenagers and my dad and I took all the teens to camp. And uh, so all the kids were uh, all there, you know, in the pew with us. And we were toward the toward the back and uh, not the very back, but we were kind of mid back. And uh, the preacher was up there and he started, uh, he, he got ready to preach. And of course, he kind of introduced himself. He kind of got things going. 
And then he said, all right, take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Hezekiah, chapter 3, verse 12. I mean, it was like, everybody's just rifling through their Bibles, rifling through them. And I mean to tell you, he's talking up there and he's like, all right, have you found it? Hezekiah, chapter 3, verse 12. Everybody's still rifling through. Next thing you know, a few people over here stop. A few people over here stop. A few people over here stop. The pages stop rustling. But my dad's over there just ripping through, buddy. Ripping through. <laughs> Finally, he says, if you're still looking, I want you to know there's no Hezekiah in the Bible. And my dad and I look at each other like, wow. I never got caught with that one again. <laughs> but I mean to tell you, it was killing me. I was dying. We're, I'm just wondering. Is this really happening? I'm sorry. I don't know why I shared that, Dad. I'm sorry. I... <laughs> and none of us have ever done anything like that, have we now, right? Okay. Nehemiah this time. We're already there, so we're pretty good shape. I think we'll be able to find it. Has there ever been a service where you were in, though, and a, the preacher gave you the verse, a verses you couldn't find the book? Have you ever been there? Yeah, I know. I was there once, not that long ago. I tell you, you get, a, you get a, just a mind block. Have you ever had that? Somebody says Hosea or something like that. Was it Hosea? Yeah, Hosea. And, uh, you know, that's, see, that's really where the verses were, by the way, was in Hosea. But he said Hezekiah just to throw us all off. But anyway, <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10. Notice what it says here. We're talking about the opposition that they faced. <clears throat> Notice it says here, when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly and they, uh, that there were come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. These guys, local guys, did not appreciate the fact that somebody came to help, as it says here, the children of Israel. They didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. Verse 19, it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and, and Geshem the Arabian heard it. Now, he, they're, they're gathering a little momentum here. There's a few others involved here. Notice, it says, They laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Nonetheless, they're seeing some tremendous opposition. Nehemiah has now made his way there and he's viewed the city and he recognizes the need. And he begins to say, listen, it's time that we do something about the city. It's time we clean things up. It's time that we begin to build again. And boy, these men were not happy about it. Nehemiah chapter 4. Notice the opposition doesn't end there. It only gets more severe. It becomes more, uh, more pronounced. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it came to pass... That when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, they're making progress now. Things are starting to happen. What first they laughed off, what first they thought was just going to be a flash in the pan, so to speak. Now all of a sudden, here they are. They're building something. And boy, I'll tell you what, that's not making them any more happy. Matter of fact, it's making them even more angry than ever. He says he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria, and said, what do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite, 
was by him. And he said, even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. I mean, to tell you, they are upset. They're so angry. And finally, this particular man here in verse 3, this Tobiah, he says, listen, don't worry about it. It doesn't seem like it's that serious because their wall ain't a whole lot to look at anyway. Making fun of them, angry, upset, but then trying to make a joke of it. Well, they didn't appreciate the fact that they were doing something about it. Notice their response in verse 6. So built we the wall. (laughs) I like that. So built we the wall. We just kept on with the work. By the way, you're going to receive some opposition in your Christian life too. Anytime you try to change anything, you try to make it better. Anytime you try to get the debris out of your life. Anytime you try to remove the debris out of your home. Anytime you try to clean up society and the culture in which we live. I promise you, somebody's going to say, who do you think you are? We don't need your kind here. How should we respond? Thank you. We'll just keep building the wall. Notice Nehemiah 4, 7 and 8. It goes on, but it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites. See, I might have read ahead already. And, at, and, and, Ashed, at, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up. It's interesting, isn't it? And that the breaches began to be stopped. Those little foxes aren't running through anymore. Then they were very wroth. Very wroth. And conspired, all of them. Notice, it just keeps gaining momentum. More and more people. So I, could, I just can see Stan Ballot running around going, Hey, come on, do you hear what those guys are doing? Come join us. Come on, let's get these guys to stop this. This is ridiculous. Come on, would you just light a lantern, would you please? Light a lantern, let's go after them. Kind of look like a scene out of, out of uh, what's that show, um, what's that thing that walks around like this? Yeah, Frankenstein, that's what it is. I could picture it. You ever see the, uh, the old movie, a 1950 movie of Frankenstein? Some of you, I know, nobody ever watched it. But anyway, the fact is, is that they show them all with those big old, you know, uh, uh, you know, what are those things called? Well, I'll tell you what, I need a lot of help tonight, don't I? What are they called? Those torches, there you go, Wow. All right, we had to use that to get in the building yesterday, by the way, because everything froze up. But anyway, you got them torches and they're running around. Boy, they're searching after him. They're trying to try to wipe him out. That's what they're trying to do with us. I can see Sam Ballot doing that here in this situation, trying to gather as many locals as he can to go up against these well-meaning believers. But he looks at them as thorns in the flesh. So the opposition continues to escalate. Notice their response in verse 9. Nevertheless... We made our prayer unto God, our God, and set a watch against them day and night because of them. Nothing holding them back. Nothing keeping them from working. I mean, listen, there's always going to be opposition to the work of God. I don't know why we are so surprised when people try to oppose us individually as we seek change in our life or in our homes and our families. You know, what's most sad and and sometimes most difficult is when a husband or wife is the one that's standing in the way of progress in the home. You know, we feel the Lord's leading us. We feel God giving us direction. And we know, we know that God wants change in our home. We know there's things that we're watching that aren't good. We know there are things we're listening to that don't belong. We recognize the fact that God is not pleased with the environment in which we're raising our children. But then one or the other stands and says, hey, listen, don't, don't do it. It's enough. 
I mean, we're going to church. Leave it alone. All right, Sanballat. Sad, isn't it? A lot of amens there. I'm going to tell you what. It happens in churches and it happens in homes across America. I'm going to tell you something. There's a problem there. Well, we've got to do something. You're going to find opposition anywhere you go trying to bring change, trying to upgrade the environment, trying to provide holiness and righteousness in an area, trying to get rid of the rubbish in your life or in your home. You're always going to have that. Well, this is the big one, and I know I'm getting off script. I've got to be careful because I'll offend somebody without a doubt because the Word of God is offensive. But it's amazing. You know, I don't think we have to be so radical. Are you kidding me? We don't have to be so radical about it. Getting a little bit, you know, I mean, it's getting a little bit overboard, isn't it? Boy, be careful. I mean, we're going to answer to God one day, folks. <clears throat> we're going to answer the Lord. We've got to be careful. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think a, a family prayer time is overboard. I don't think turning off some movie where there's just cussing after cussing going on is really overboard. I, I don't think shutting your R-rated movies off when there's you know, all this bad stuff going on in them is, is really overboard. I don't, I don't think it's overboard. I, I think that our overboard and God's overboard are two different overboards. We've got to be careful, but there's going to be opposition. Nehemiah and the people of God faced all kinds of opposition, and so will we. And you know, our city is in spiritual disarray today. It's wrecked and ruined spiritually. There's no doubt about that. There are casualties, there are fatalities lying in the streets today. The foundations of faith, morality, and integrity have been upheaved, and the walls of decency, justice, and right are burned to the ground tonight. God help us in this generation. Not the next generation, this generation. To clean up the city, begin to rebuild it for the glory of God. Amidst the obstacles and the opposition, the wall was built. How was it built? I believe the answer is found in Nehemiah 4.6. I mean, how did they get this done? How is it that amidst the overwhelming obstacles and the mounting opposition that the people of God complete the task and build the wall? How is that possible? Well, Nehemiah 4.6, I believe, gives us the answer. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together into the half thereof. Here it is. Here's the answer. For the people had a mind to work. People had a mind to work. That's what the Bible says. The people had a mind to work. See, we can never forget as believers that the God that we serve is one of unlimited resources. He's a creator that is never in need himself. You never have to give God anything in a sense because God always has everything he needs. He gives you the opportunity and me the opportunity to to, to invest in eternity. He gives us the privilege of being a part of something bigger than ourselves and joining in on and having the opportunity to give. But the truth is, He doesn't need your giving and He doesn't need mine. It is a privilege that we have. It's an opportunity He gives us. It's for our own good that we have that chance. 
We need only rely on him, and he is anxious to extend a helping hand always. He'll, he'll step in and do it for us if we'll just allow him. The obstacles of finance, the obstacle of time and energy, the obstacle of knowledge, all of those things are trumped by God's unlimited resources. So the opposition that we perceive, or maybe even the opposition that we legitimately face, is no match for His matchless grace and His wonderful benevolence. You know, there's often only one thing that stands between us and the victory that God intends for us. I wonder if you can guess what that is. There's only one missing element that keeps us from turning the world upside down for Christ. A mind to work. You say, I don't believe it. Really? What's holding us back? Is God holding us back? Nehemiah 4, 6 says, So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together into the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. You know, Jesus had a mind to work, didn't He? Early on, when found in the temple... Here he is reasoning, if you will, with the priest, and he says to his earthly parents as they come, Hey, where you at, Jesus? What's going on? And Jesus says to them, How is it that ye sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? He had a mind to work. Later in life, he again confirms his position there in John 9, 4, when he says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. For night cometh when no man can work. The night cometh when no man can work. I've got to get this done. I can't delay now. I can't put on the brakes now. I can't take comfort now. I've got to get the job done. He had a mind to work. He had a plan for his life, and he worked that plan. He had a mind to work, and as a result, he accomplished great things on behalf of God the Father. You know, Paul had a mind to work, didn't he? Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. That's really in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. <clears throat> Notice what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. So we would not be chargeable unto any of you. And you remember how we labored. You remembered how we travailed. You got it down. Remember, night and day, day and night, we kept at it, we kept at it, we kept at it, because there were souls weighing in the balance. Paul had a mind to work. Acts chapter 20, verse 31. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. See, God had a plan for Paul's life. He worked that plan. Paul had a mind to work, and as a result, he accomplished great things on behalf of God. A mind to work. See, God has a plan for your life, and God has a plan for my life as well. We need only work that plan. We've got to work at being a godly man or woman. 
We've got to work at reading our, our, the Bibles and studying the Word of God and praying and memorizing and attending the house of God, performing the work of God, being involved in the house of God and the work of God. There are all kinds of obstacles and opposition, but God's resources are unlimited. And so, therefore, the only thing that can truly keep us from fulfilling our God-given purpose in life and the plan that God has for us is us. A lack, if you would, of work, if you will. Now, don't misunderstand me. I didn't say that we don't work. I'm not saying that. Someone says, oh, I suppose because I'm not where you think I ought to be, I'm not working hard enough. I didn't say that. I'm not talking about that. Let me say this. You can give a child a job and they may even do it. But that doesn't mean they're putting their heart into it. You ever give a job to one of your kids? I mean, there they are. They're doing the job. Oh, they get it done. But their heart's not in it. And boy, you know what? If we'd be honest, it affects the... The level of, of, I guess, perfection. It, it affects how well they do the job in most cases, too. Oh, yeah, they're getting it done. They're working, yes, but they're not putting their heart into it. They do just enough to get the job done. They may or not have a good attitude in the midst of the job, no, but, but they're getting it done. They don't have a mind to work, mind you. They're just doing some work. See, there's a difference having a mind to work and simply just doing what you've got to do. You know, years ago we started, you know, around my house at least, and I've mentioned it probably in church too, we tried this whole thing where, you know, i got to go do this. No, I get to do this. So we try to get this attitude around, I get to go to church. I get to go to the youth activity. I get to go soul winning. I get to go bus visiting. I get to ride the bus. I get to work all day Sunday. I get to do it all day, all week. I get to work. I get to, to, to enjoy the ministry. I get to do this and I get to do that. I get to sing today. Not I have to sing today. I have to go to choir practice. I have to go soul winning. I have to go bus visiting. I have to go to church. I have to listen to the choir. That didn't, I didn't mean that to come out. <laughs> Do you know where I'm going with it? It's a mind to work. I don't know about you, but there are some things I just don't like to do. And I didn't just give you a list of them. And it's not always easy, but hold on. But I'll tell you what, how dangerous is it as a parent if I approach church, the ministry, all of those things with I have to's and my little children are all watching and listening. You know, the other day I was with my wife and we were over at my uh, granddaughter's house. Notice I didn't say Megan or Brad's. We was over at my granddaughter's house. And, of course, my wife was helping with the baby during the day and stuff. And, and I'd come home from work and I'd stop over there. Uh, actually, I, I, I just happened to be, I can't remember what the exact situation was. But I was there and, and I, for, for a couple of days in a row, every time I leave, I, you know, I kiss my wife. I say, all right, honey, I'll see you later. I kiss her and, and I, I leave. Well, my, my granddaughter's not real touchy-feely. Like, at least she wasn't with me for a while. And all of a sudden what I noticed was this. 
I'd go up to my wife and I'd say, I'll see you later, hon. Goodbye. I give her a kiss. She gives me a kiss. And I start, and here, you know what happened after the second day? My granddaughter come running over. You want to know why? She wanted her kiss. She, she, well, what about me? Or wait a second. I got to give you one now too, because that's what we do in our house. In this house, when you leave, you kiss somebody. I saw it. I've observed it. I've watched it. You didn't tell me that's how it works. I just saw it. And I'm like, all right. And I give her a kiss. Bye, honey. Give her a kiss. And I walk out the door and she's fine. Now, she never run up to me like that. A lot of times I go to give her a kiss. In fact, she's like, wow, wow. I'm like, what in the world just happened? You're my granddaughter. You know what I mean? You're of, you're, you know, you're of my own loins. I mean, what's the problem here? What? But but watch what she saw and what she experienced changed how she responded. It wasn't what I said or taught her. It's what she viewed and what she saw. Well, I'll tell you what, let's be careful that it's not I have to do this and I have to do that and I've got to do that and I've got to do this. No, we get to. You know what your kids will do? They'll grow up loving what you love. They really will. A mind to work. Our Jerusalem is laid waste tonight. I know you can't see it quite. You drive down the road and it looks like any normal city as a whole. People living their lives. People going through the motions. I get it. But don't you see the debris Don't you see the gates burned down? Can't you see that the city is in ruin? The only thing that's going to make a difference is a mind to work. We've already got all the necessary tools. We've already got the power that we need. We've got everything at our disposal. The only difference is, is will we apply those things the way we ought to? It takes a mind to work. What about your marriage? What about a marriage tonight? You got a mind to work? If you just think your marriage is going to work out, you just say, well, you know what, I ain't got time for that now. You know, I'm just extremely busy. I go to work, and by the time I get home, I'm tired, and I'm wore out. My wife and my kids ought to understand that. They don't. I made a motto. I decided a long time ago something real important, and I'm not saying I'm the example or perfection at this, but let me tell you something. I made up my mind a long time ago. If anybody suffers in the O'Donnell house, it's me. Nobody suffers for the long hours I work. Nobody suffers for what I have to invest in the ministry and in my life and in the work that God's called me to do but me. My kids don't suffer. I come home and still play when I'm dead dog tired. I still have communication with my wife. I still do all the things that everybody else is supposed to do when they go home. I may put in 80 hours a week, but my kids are not going to suffer because I can't stay up and I can't keep my eyes open. No, I go without sleep all night if I have to, but my kids will not know that there's a problem. I made up my mind a long time ago. I suffer before anyone else. And you know what, sir? That's where you got to get in your life. Oh, I worked 50 hours this week. Boo-hoo. You think your kids care? Well, they got to understand that I'm providing for them and I'm putting clothes on their back. Yeah, well, when you come home, why don't you show them a little attention anyway? I'm not saying spend the whole evening running around playing cowboys and Indians. But I'm saying this, they need to know daddy's there for them. They need to know that you still love them. They still need to realize that they're more important than your work. 
And it's true with mama too. She needs to know that. Tell you what, your, mom, your wife will put up with a lot of junk if she knows that she's first in your life. She'll deal with a lot. And she'll support you through it all if she knows that. Most wives will. I can't say all will. I, I, I really can't nowadays, but I can say that most would. What about your marriage? You, you got a mind to work? What about your family? Your home? We better get a mind to work. Things just don't happen by chance. God's given us all the tools. He's given us the blueprint. He's given us the power. I mean, the plan is right before us. The question is is this. Are you willing to work it? That takes a mind to work. Because if it's not a mind to work, you know what it is? It's a duty to you. And you'll throw it off to the side as soon as it gets that inconvenient and it's not showing the kind of successes that you you expected to see. Anyway, we're going to close this down, but a simple thought tonight. A mind to work. What about you? You got a mind to work? I mean, as a church, we better have a mind to work. All this stuff we're talking about, you know, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and all, you know, we're going to go out soul winning, we're going to knock on thousands of doors, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, means absolutely nothing if there's not a church that has a mind to work. Plans don't get it done. Goals don't, don't really matter unless you pursue them. We need a mind to work. What about your marriage? What about your home? What about your family? Are you willing to have a mind to work? And say, no matter what the cost, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to work and put God's plan in motion in my life, my marriage, my family, my ministry, my life. May God help us to have a mind to work. Father, we come to you.